This is the Bama Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we look at the second letter from the Apostle Peter to see how he utilizes the Midrash to encourage the early believers to keep walking in faithfulness and not give in to the temptation to return to the cultural norms around them. Yep. So in addition to 1 Peter, we have a second letter from Peter to what we would assume is the same general region. Um, While the first letter was written to almost all of the region of Asia and Asia Minor, which would have included a Jewish population, scholars are saying today about 20%, about one out of every five people would have been Jewish in Asia and Asia Minor, which is actually a ton. It's a lot. It's a lot of Jews. Um, It's my opinion that his next letter, while meant to be heard by both Jewish and Gentile audiences, is aimed more specifically at the struggle of those Gentile converts. And again, if Peter spent all this time in those regions like... Galatia and Cappadocia and Bithynia and those kind of things, he would have spent most of his time with Gentiles, Gentiles that weren't being included and welcomed by people like the Jews and the synagogues there. And and I feel like Second Peter is almost so. First Peter, Brent, go back to last week and and tell me how you what do you feel like kind of like the big idea was of First Peter. Uh, that we're like this unified body of believers, the spiritual house idea. We're all stones building the one house. And even, and that's so important because they're, they're in a context of what? Of persecution. Intense persecution, right? And so first Peter was like, hey guys, hang in there. Keep walking. Keep, keep walking out the faith. Keep living in faithfulness. And Second Peter is kind of like the other side of the conversation because Peter's encouraging to do that in First Peter because the other temptation is going to be what, Brent? To just absorb into the culture. Exactly. And, just and kind of like, not... yeah, absolutely. Instead of keeping strong and standing in your conviction and having a distinctiveness to just kind of like, I don't know if giving up's the right term, but just losing that distinctiveness and becoming, you know, sitting in the middle of, of culture. So I think Second Peter's kind of like the other side of the conversation of that they're that they're struggling with. And and I, so I believe he's he's talking particularly with a special emphasis and focus on Gentile converts. And I believe this because of Peter's address. Go ahead and give me the first opening verses here of Peter. Yeah, Second it is, Peter. It is a little bit of a different opening than, it is. than first Peter. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. Okay. Listen to that line. To those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. Who's the ours? That's the Jews. The Jews. And so who through the righteousness of Jesus who is it that through the righteousness of Jesus received a faith as precious as the Jews? The Gentiles. It'd be the Gentiles. So that's that's where I'm getting my theory. So go ahead and keep give us a few more verses there. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. All right, so he speaks of this, you've escaped that pagan world, this evil world, this evil desires. For a Jewish teacher, righteousness is the idea of generosity and kindness. I read Peter's address to say that because of the kindness and generosity of Jesus, the Gentiles have also received a faith just as precious as a Jewish faith. 
His next comments define what he'll spend his time arguing for. Peter tells them that they, the Gentiles, have God's divine power helping them deal with escaping the temptations of their pagan world and their sinful desires to indulge in those practices. Peter is going to go on to make very Jewish, rabbinical arguments, which are even rooted deeply in the Midrash. And we'll talk more about the Midrash portion of it, kind of more in the book of Jude. When we do our episode on Jude, we'll get more into the details. And I'll probably say that a few more times before we're done today. But but Peter is making some really Jewish arguments rooted in Midrash. Does this mean that I'm wrong in my assumption of a Gentile audience? Maybe. I don't think so. Does it mean uh, that, a tra- that, that he's working with a trained Gentile audience? Very possibly, because if you remember our, our discussion through the book of Galatians, we were dealing with Gentiles who were struggling with the temptation to, what, Brent? Attempted to convert to Judaism. Right. And so you have in that, uh, they would have been a very trained Gentile audience. Right. Um, so maybe Peter feels free to reuse rabbinical arguments and stuff rooted in Midrash because these are not your typical average everyday, you know, Ephesian Gentile. This is a Gentile potentially out of Galatia or some region like that. Does it mean that the, that the Jewish audience, that there's still a Jewish audience along with these Gentiles that's going to assist in the reading and learning of these teachings? We've certainly seen that many times before. We have. Absolutely. Um, does it simply show that Peter, and we're going to see that a lot through Revelation as well, too. I even actually thought about doing Second Peter and Jude after Revelation and our study in Revelation, but I thought, well, that's just stupid. It's a dumb idea. So I rejected that idea, <laughs> but I will, <laughs> I will encourage you maybe to come back after session four is all done and re-listen to Second Peter and Jude in particular, because I think you're going to have a lot more stuff to work with. And these arguments are even going to make even more sense because it, it could be, and this will make more sense after Revelation, but it could be that Peter is simply trying to put God's text into context and let his words go to work. We haven't really made that point really strongly yet, but we're going to by the time session four is up. We'll hit it really hard in Revelation. I sure hope we're so. We're not doing verse by verse for Revelation, but we're covering a lot of Revelation. We are. We are. And I, if we don't do that, I, I fail uh, session four. Um, either way... Peter references some real humdingers as far as teachings go. The bulk of his letter is a plea to the Gentiles not to give in to the teaching of false teachers. Now, I think this is important. In our typical evangelical world, we immediately start thinking in terms of orthodoxy. I say false teachers, people think orthodoxy. And we kind of touched on this in session three, Brent. Assuming that... Uh, that these false teachers are teaching incorrect doctrine and enticing them into wrong belief. But this is obviously not the case with a careful reading of the letter of Second Peter. These false teachers are not leading them into wrong beliefs with issues of orthodoxy. These false teachers are leading them into wrong practice. And Peter's main concern is orthopraxy. It's a fun word, orthopraxy. Orthodoxy, right belief. Orthopraxy, right practice. Peter's concern is orthopraxy, not orthodoxy. And you can't actually, if you go back and read Second Peter, you cannot make Peter's concern orthodoxy. It doesn't work in the letter. Like you, you can't, you can't even read it into it if you're reading it with honest hermeneutical integrity. Peter and Jude, which we're going to get into later, are going to draw on the same stories. I, I, it almost makes you feel like the authors could even be the same. Like the the argument of Jude is so 
similar to the argument of Second Peter. I mean, they're using the same thought process and the same order with the same references. Um, so uh, at the very least, these two authors were very well-versed in this argument, and maybe Jude and Peter worked together. Who knows? But we'll, we'll draw out those details uh, when we get to the book of Jude. But for now, I want us here today to examine the second chapter of Peter's letter and realize that Peter is talking about these false teachers in the terms of their refusal to acknowledge three things, Brent. Number one, the ungodliness and idolatry of their culture. And this list of three is important by the time we get to Jude, by the way. The first one is the ungodliness and idolatry of their culture. The second is their desire for prestige, power, wealth, and influence. And we talked last episode about how they were they didn't have these things. And so they're, they're tempted to the other side of this coin is I'll just give up on this distinctiveness and I can reclaim some of that power and wealth and influence and comfort and prestige and privilege. So number one, the ungodliness and idolatry of their culture. Number two, the desire for power, wealth, influence. Number three, the sexual immorality that is incongruent with the way of Jesus. And again, we're going to talk about this a lot more in Revelation. But one of the things that they're dealing with in this culture is something called guild feasts. And behind these guild feasts, we're not going to unpack it here on this episode, but behind a guild feast sits idolatry. There's always a, a, a well, let's explain it for a little bit so that I'm not talking about nothing in the episode. <laughs> so a, a guild in the ancient Roman world was, if you think about a, a labor union and a college fraternity, and you put those two things together. It's a good image of what a guild was. A guild was, your guild was formed because of your vocation. So it was about your labor. And in that way, it was kind of like a labor union. All the blacksmiths had a blacksmith's guild. The potters had a pottery guild. You were all a part of, but you also had like a, a fraternal brotherhood. You were committed to each other. You partied together. You did life together. So it was a labor union, but it was also a fraternity. It was, and you actually had a monthly party. Most people associate them with the new moons. Uh, every month you'd get together as your guild and you'd have a big work party. Now these guild feasts were pretty, uh, the experience was somewhat universal. They almost always had a, an, an idolatry component, which revolved around food. And almost all of them that we have record of uh, observed their guild feasts by the consumption of raw meat. You're eating raw meat. And that's because the you're eating in reference to a god, because your guild had a god. And so this guild is, um, uh, you know, you might have the blacksmith's guild and their god is Zeus. And so you're eating a meal to Zeus. And the idea is that if I eat the raw meat and get the blood in me, then that I'm getting the God in me and I am ingesting Zeus and Zeus is now living through me. And so there's an idolatry component, but then on the backhand of those guild feasts, and if anybody happens to be, man, is that what Jesus is doing with, with communion? I feel like John is definitely making a play on that. Absolutely. John is. Flusser didn't even believe Jesus even taught that in the gospel of John because it's just so un-Jewish. It's just such an un-Jewish idea. That he says, right, right. John yeah. made it up and put it in his gospel because of the contextual influence. Uh, I don't, I don't believe that. I think Jesus actually taught about it, and you've heard me teach on this in Turkey. I, I can't imagine John waiting for decades, wandering into a place like Pergamum, 
seeing a guild feast and maybe for the first time and going, wait, you guys believe what? And having these words of Jesus been echoing, bouncing around in his head for years, decades, like, what do I do with that day? That was a confusing lesson. <laughs> I don't know what to And then all of a sudden, boom, it lands. So yeah, so th- this is the context. And at the end of these feasts, uh, there was all kinds of sexual immorality. Um, prostitutes would come in to the guild feasts, and the, the rest of the evening was kind of this drunken debauchery, sexual immorality to the max. So that, that was a guild feast. And that's the culture in, Gre- in, in Asia and Asia Minor, in this Greco-Roman world, that they're surrounded by. So again, their temptation and, and what they're dealing with, the false teachers are leading these believers into the idolatry of their culture, number one. They're trying to tap into their desire for power, wealth, and influence, number two. And these false teachers are leading them into sexual immorality. And it's not the sexual immorality in itself. It's the cultural embrace of guild feasts, which have idolatry and sexual morality at their core. So when viewed alongside Peter's first letter, this becomes a great one-two punch, addressing the struggle of the Greco-Asian church. Uh, Let's actually, uh, I said I want us to look at the second chapter of Peter. Brent, how about you read through the second chapter of Peter, and I'm probably going to stop you like almost every verse and just make, not that that's an unusual practice for me, but uh, I'll make some comments on uh, second Peter two here. If you say so. (laughs) But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them bringing swift destruction on themselves. Okay, now it feels like, okay, but Marty, you said there's orthodoxy denying the Lord. Now let's talk about how they're denying the Lord. Let's talk about if it's going to be, if there's any mention of belief in Second Peter 2, or if this is about practice. Go ahead and keep reading. Many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. That sounds like practice to me. Sure okay, does. go ahead. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, which is apparently the Greek word Tartarus, which is different than what Jesus was using. It's not Gehenna. That's correct. Interesting. Uh, something for the listeners to look into. Yep. Putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless, For that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. This is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desire of the flesh and despise authority. Okay, so this is about orthopraxy, and there's a bunch of references to Midrash here that will be more deliberate in the book of Jude, and therefore that's where we're going to color cover them. But we have um, angels and chains of darkness. Okay, that's going to be a reference to Midrash. We're going to have Noah, which is obviously not Midrash, but a lot of Midrash surrounding Noah. We have Sodom and Gomorrah and a reference to their depravity, which we've already seen in Ezekiel. What was the depravity of Sodom and Gomorrah, Brent? 
very st- stated very deliberately. They didn't take care of the aliens, orphans, and widows. Right. They were all about power and influence and idolatry. Um, Jude is actually going to make reference to sexual morality. It's actually the only mention of sexual morality when it comes to Sodom and Gomorrah and like 29 references uh, in the in the scriptures. But we'll get to that when we get to Jude. Um, so so a, a lot of Midrash quotation here. I'm going to put that on pause for a few episodes until we get to Jude. But go ahead and keep reading. Bold and arrogant, they are not afraid to heap abuse on celestial beings. Yet even angels, although they are stronger and more powerful, do not heap abuse on such beings when bringing judgment on them from the Lord. But these people blaspheme in matters that they do not understand. They are like unreasoning animals, creatures of instinct, born only to be caught and destroyed, and like animals, they too will perish. And again, I really think that's a reference to conduct, not a reference to the orthodoxy of their teachings. It's what they're telling people to do. It's what they're engaging in in the lives that they're living. That's what. That's how they're disrespecting authority. That's how they're heaping abuse, even on angels, uh, Peter says here, which is, again, slightly colored by... Jewish perspective, Midrash, that kind of stuff. But go ahead and keep reading. Well, moments ago, even we talked about, uh, especially true of those who follow the corrupt desire of the flesh, that word for flesh is sarks, which we have talked about before. Correct. Animal appetites. And so this reference to like animals, they will perish. Uh, yep. Makes total sense. Absolutely. They will be paid back with harm for the harm they have done. Their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. They are blots and blemishes reveling in their pleasures while they feast with you. All right. So a reference to some feasting there, or guilt feast, who knows? Um, it's kind of an arbitrary assumption on my part, but definitely behavior, definitely orthopraxy, which is the problem here. footnote on that says some manuscripts say in their love feasts rather than in their pleasures while they feast. Oh, interesting. There is a love feast that Josephus makes reference to, but that would not be the same kind of feast that Peter would be referencing here. Different kind of love, different kind of love feast. Okay. With eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They are experts in greed, an accursed brood. They have left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, son of Bezer, who loved the wages of wickedness. Okay, now a reference there to Balaam. Balaam's going to get referenced in Jude. We'll cover more of that. But Balaam, what was driving the Balaam story? Wasn't Balaam being driven by idolatry, number one, a desire for power and prestige? And wealth, number two. And now the book of Numbers doesn't say this, but book of Jude is going to absolutely reference it. And so is the book of Revelation. Balaam and Midrash is responsible for the Moabites seducing the Israelites right after Balaam's oracles in the book of Numbers. The very next chapter has the Moabites coming in and seducing Israel. And the Jews said, well, how did that happen out of nowhere? The Midrash teaches that Balaam was scared for his life because Balak was pretty mad. He wouldn't curse Israel. And so in order to save his life, Balaam tells Balak, well, if you want to upset the Israelites, just send your women. You have the most beautiful women on earth. Send your women in there to seduce them and they'll commit sexual immorality. And so central to the Balaam narrative is sexual idolatry, a desire for power and prestige, and sexual immorality. That is central, the central tenets to the Jewish understanding of the story of Balaam. Now, we can say, oh, well, Marty, that's just Midrash. The problem is, is your New Testament on multiple occasions is going to affirm that Midrash. So your inspired New Testament agrees with that rendering of Balaam. So we can't really escape it. Go ahead. But he was rebuked for his wrongdoing by a donkey, an animal without speech, who spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. 
These people are springs without water and mists driven by a storm. Blackest darkness is reserved for them. For they mouth empty, boastful words, and by appealing to the lustful desires of the flesh, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, while they themselves are slaves of depravity. For people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. Definitely orthopraxy, definitely behavior here. If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and are again entangled in it, and are overcome, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then to turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Of them, the Proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit, and a sow that is washed returns to her wallowing in the mud. Yeah. Right. So here's, I mean, this is Peter's big idea. You have to overcome the persecution and the suffering. That's first Peter. You have to overcome that. You have to endure in order to be different and tell a different story in the world. But you cannot give in to the ways of culture and lose your testimony either. It's the other side. It's the other side of the conversation. You have to remain committed to the mission of God. If any of this sounds familiar, it's because it is. We talked about this all the way back at the beginning of session two, Brent. We talked about Joshua, Judges, living at the crossroads, and the idea of living in the what, Brent? In the tension, in the culture, in Shephela. In Shephela. There we go. That was a word I was looking for. Uh, Living in Shephela and that tension between the coastal plain and the Judah mountains. We were shown all the way back there at the beginning of the story what it looks like. To, to live this life and live out eventually what would become the ministry of Jesus. We are reminded of that again here now with Second Peter. God has always wanted a people at the crossroads of the earth, a kingdom of priests, we called it, ready to show the world what God is like. But the temptation to give in to the ways of culture will be strong, and we must be sure that we don't have any pig bones, to reference an earlier lesson. The mission of God has always been the same has not changed from the days of Joshua and Judges and the Shephela to now in Greco-Asia, Greco-Roman culture of Asia and Asia Minor. The mission of God has always been the same. It has always been one story, and God has always been looking for partners. At different points in history, God has sometimes found those partners and sometimes struggled to find them. Which chapter of history will we be today? Second Peter, Brent Billings. So we're probably going to get a few uh, questions about the Midrash from this episode. So if people are curious about the Midrash, do you have any suggestions for them? We don't really have like a, the Midrash is this, uh, is this thing that's massive and difficult to, to put your mind around. So uh, what do you, how do you approach it? Um, there's no casual way to approach it, I guess. There's no casual way to approach it. And and probably if people are this deep into the podcast at session four, they probably sent me that email a while ago. But just in case they're thinking of sending it to me either again or for the first time, that, yeah, there's no easy way to study the Midrash. There's a beautiful resource. Put this in your show notes, Brent. Um, safaria.org is a project put out by, if I understand it, some young Jewish Orthodox textual scholars. Um, uh, the old world would have called them lawyers, um, not really scribes. Well, maybe yeah, digital scribes. I like it. But any, literally five or 10 years ago, you, you, you did not have a way to even access the Midrash um, like this link we're going to give you. Uh, the Midrash is in Hebrew. <laughs> so, so that is uh, problem number one. 
um, is, and you could find translations into the English in different places, but it's this massive, massive, massive encyclopedia. So if you go to that link at safari.org and what you're going to see is you're going to see the main components of the Midrash, but click on any one of those components and it's going to open up to a, a, a bunch of other components. <laughs> And, and you're just going to be like, what in the world am I even looking at? The Midrash, capital M, is a gigantic library, an Encyclopedia Britannica-sized catalog of oral teaching from different points of history, different subsets. I've been at this for 12 years, Brent, and I I just barely feel like I can poke my head in and kind of know some of the main streets of the neighborhood. Like, I kind of know my way around Mishnah. I'm getting familiar with the Talmud and how it functions. I've been doing this very intentionally for 12 years. I don't know my way around the Midrash. These Orthodox, these young Orthodox guys are putting this online and translating it into the English. And you'll actually find that not all of it's even translated into the English. But you will also find you can't use it. Without training, you're not just going to be able to get in there and just, you know, use the Midrash. Like, it just doesn't work that way. Orthodox rabbis spend 30 years studying this stuff to become ordained, which is why I'm so adamant that people don't call me rabbi with a capital R. I am not a rabbi. I have not put in that kind of time. I do not have that kind of knowledge. Orthodox rabbis today have spent decades devoting their entire lives to studying the Midrash so that they know it well enough that they they can get all around the neighborhood and they know what's in every building and they know the addresses and they know where to go. Like I know some main streets. <laughs> I kind of barely know how to navigate it. So the quick answer is, I'm giving you the long answer, but the quick answer is you can't just, how do I study the Midrash? And I hate to be a punk when people write me an email about that. You can't. Um, it, it's going to require an entire life to understand the Midrash. What you can do is interact with the Midrash in the same way they always have, always have interacted with the Midrash. It's the way that I've learned the Midrash. And that's simply to learn it from other Jewish teachers that are ordained. They are trained in the Midrash. So I've learned most of my Midrash from foremen. I've picked up some stories here and there with different resources that I've read, for sure. But most of the Midrash that I'm familiar with on a working level, I've picked up from from Foreman. Or maybe some really, especially when it comes to like New Testament, like Second Peter or Jude, a really good study Bible, uh, a really good contextual resource, um, kind of opening that stuff up can be very helpful. Once you know what you're looking for, I'm now at the place where I can typically go find it in the Midrash so that I can quote it. I can find the source. But man, it's a, I've been at this for a long time and it is not easy and there's no easy way to go about doing it and learning it. Like it'd be easier to say, how can I learn Talmud? Well, there's a, there's a few different ways you can learn Talmud, but Talmud's only a fraction of the Midrash. Um, how can I learn the Mishnah? Well, we could we could learn the Mishnah. That's not a problem. But that's only a fraction of the Talmud or a fraction of, well, it is a fraction of the Talmud and a fraction of the Mishnah. So it's, it's um, thanks for bringing up that question. <laughs> There's the really complicated answer. I will recommend, put this book in there, Brent, uh, in your show notes, Brent will put this book, uh, The Bible As It Was by James Kugel. That is a really like skipping a stone across the Midrash, it is a synopsis. It is 
not comprehensive. It is like the bare bone basics of the Midrash surrounding the books of Moses, just the books of Moses, just Genesis through Deuteronomy. Um, and it's a great resource just to kind of start to become familiar with what the Midrash is. Uh, the, he, Kugel, uh, came from Harvard. Um, uh, you'll probably find the introduction to that book a little uncomfortable because he's a textual, liberal textual critic. So he's not assuming the inspiration of the scriptures. Um, so yeah, you'll be challenged by probably some of the things that you might read in the introduction, but a great book as far as just getting a basic idea of where the Midrash is headed and how it works. Well, and we mentioned Noah earlier in the episode, that movie Noah uh, from 2014, I believe, Absolutely. is basically all Midrash. It's it's one of my the, favorite movies. The filmmakers are, are, uh, Absolutely. are Jewish. And I, there's even a reference here when Noah, when Peter says Noah and the seven others on the ark. And we go, oh, yeah, the seven others on the ark were who? His, his sons and then everyone's wives. And everyone's wives. So you've got Noah and his three sons and everyone's wives. So there's eight. So Noah and seven others. Yeah, I got it. But the Midrash actually doesn't teach that. The Midrash teaches that Ham's wife, Ham doesn't even have a wife when he gets on the ark. And Nimrod sneaks on the ark, which has been in every Hollywood production of Noah I've ever seen. And when I was younger and all the Christians that I'm surrounded with go, oh, that's not even accurate. That's not even Bible. It's just Hollywood. We hate Hollywood. Not even realizing that like that 2014 version was written by ortho, directed by Orthodox, former Orthodox Jews, guys who grew up as Orthodox Jews, using the Midrash to inform their, inter- every single piece of that movie is Midrash. It is, is brilliant. That, that whole movie is absolutely brilliant. There's nothing made up that's not in the not in the Jewish midrash. It's actually all Bible, <laughs> and we were like, that wasn't even close to Bible. And <laughs> I love that movie. Uh, put yeah. that in the show notes too. I like that one. I it, it well definitely uh, yeah sure why not I'll put the, put the movie in the show notes yeah that's that's a good evening right there it is you want to study the midrash there you go watch Noah watch Noah and go where in the world. These rock people? What are these rock people? Yeah, that's the that's the Watchers from the Midrash. That's the Book of Enoch. That's 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 the Nephilim. The, people wrote me when we went through session one. People write me all the time. What about the Nephilim? That's the Nephilim in the Midrash. Sound a little fantastical? Yes, that's the idea. That's that's how it works. So, yeah, beautiful. Right. Well, I think we've given people plenty to work with on this episode. I think so. I think we did a good job. <laughs> we don't even need any questions. Don't contact us about this episode. Yep, there you go. Study for the next couple of decades. <laughs> go to Uh Make sure you check out the, the show notes so you can uh, see the things we've referenced here. So thanks for joining us on the Baymont Podcast. We will talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.